Welcome to Free Will Science and Religion. I'm Mitch J. I'm here with Trick Slattery, Chandler Klebs, and George Ortega. Today we're going to talk about the most popular stance on the issue of free will, compatibilism. We're going to try to really focus our efforts here to describe what it is and hopefully convince everyone that it makes absolutely no sense. So uh, I guess we should start with some popular stances. So the, the three most popular stances when it comes to the issue of free will are the hard determinist stance, uh, this libertarian free or the hard and compatibilist stance. Mm -hmm. So uh, libertarian free will, and then there's compatibilism. So the issues that people are concerned with are determinism and free will. Can you live in a universe where you have both things? The hard determinist says, well, we have determinism, and that means we don't have free will. The compatibilist says, we do have determinism, but somehow, if you really think about it in a nuanced kind of way, you also have free will. The proponent of libertarian free will says, actually, determinism is a problem. We don't have that, and we do have free will, which is minority position it's not as popular um, compatibilists most philosophers many scientists most people who think that they have a grasp of what free will is if they investigate the issue they would probably describe themselves as compatibilists so how about we all go around and maybe we could give some popular uh, the popular arguments that compatibilists present and we can try to deconstruct them so um, you want, does anybody want to start? George, perhaps? All right. One, one compatibilist um, position is that it doesn't matter to them that we're not in control of our decisions, our actions, our feelings. The fact that it is we who are feeling them, you know, um, makes it possible to attribute free will to us. You know, because here we're, they're, they're basically, I guess, I guess, going from the standpoint of, moral, fundamental moral responsibility. Uh, they want to hold people accountable for, for things that are just like not, you know, up to them at all. And, you know, we talk about pragmatically holding people accountable. We have to do that, but they want to do it in the strongest sense. And, you know, the absurdity of that argument is like, well, by that reasoning, then a puppet would have free will, you know, because a puppet is doing something. It doesn't matter if it has strings or, if, you know, if it's not in control of anything it does. You know, it's just a fact that, like, the agent, the puppet, the human being is doing it, and that, that renders free will. Obviously, that's not what the debate is about, so it's kind of like a straw man argument. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. Well said. So it's, so, you know, when... um. When hard determinists or hard incompatibilists, when people who are skeptical, free will skeptics, when they are presenting their arguments against this idea of free will, uh, we often say, here's the fundamental issue. If you accept causality, for example, if you accept this deterministic view on reality, then everything that happens, happens for a cause, for, uh, because of an, an antecedent factor that caused it to happen. So this includes your thoughts, certainly. Your thoughts have to originate before you are consciously aware of them. And responsibility has to be linked to consciousness. Like, we don't blame people who sleepwalk. That's the usual example that I give. 
You could do anything you want when you're sleepwalking. No one will ever say you are, as you said, George, fundamentally responsible. They might hold you pragmatically responsible in the sense that they have to physically detain you and stop you from doing whatever dangerous actions you're doing, but they don't have to, uh, to blame you. So somehow the compatibilist says, yeah, you know, there's causality, there's determinism, but there's this extra part of you that is somehow removed from causality whose role is to just judge the causes and you're aware of it and you control it. And that's not meaningful in any way. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think I think most of the compatibilists um, they agree that they're caused. So so I don't think they necessarily don't agree that they're caused. They actually agree that you know their decisions are caused, but they think that because it's they doing it that that that's something I guess like you say special. That's that's above other variables so, uh, so, so that, that's the other issue and they want to call that free will right yeah yeah and 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 they want to say that well it's because they have you know they're the i guess if you were to talk to that person you could change their mind and things like that of course so i think we kind of agree with compatibilists on this that that <laughs> um you know people's minds can change uh we can pragmatically adjust a mindset for example by by through communication or something like that and that can cause them to have a different um, um, decision making ability basically they'll, they'll decide on <laughs> something else that they wouldn't have decided without that rational uh, discourse first but it's all it's all the whole thing is causal and that's kind of where they're kind of they're not they're being kind of blindsided on that part of it. Um, so Den Daniel Dennett is the one of the biggest uh, compatibilists. He's he's the mo probably the most popular, at least right now. Um, his definition of free will, which he kind of doesn't really say it, uh, like in his books, he doesn't go ahead and say oh, free will means this. You know, you kind of have to figure out, and then eventually down the road, he'll, he'll kind of give you an idea of what he means by free will, but. But it doesn't. He doesn't. They're they're not clear on what they mean by it. Um, he uses the power to be active agents, biological devices that respond to our environment with rational, desirable courses of action. So basically, he's saying that the ability to rationalize and the fact that it came up about evolutionarily and things like that, you know, uh, and that we're biological. So so he's 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 creating these criteria that he says gives us free will. And if you don't have these criteria, if you're not biological, for example, then you don't have free will. But so, so it's, it's kind of an arbitrary criteria that Daniel Dennett gives, for example. Um, why biological? Why, why, yeah. why does the bio, the, what's the difference between a I biological agree. device That's and a non-biological device? Um, so what, why does that matter? Oh, it's because he doesn't want to say that you know, a robot has free will, right? So, so, so he—it's—it's it's, it's arbitrary. It's an arbitrary definition of free will. Yeah, yeah. So Dennett's name comes up all the time on this show because, uh, like you said, because of his prominence, and because he's been um, um, such a champion for reason on other fronts, like when it comes to the issue of religion, for example. So it's been really. Uh, out of his character, really, this sort of compatibilist position uh, that he says. So, yeah, you said a lot of things, Trick, that uh, 
that we could address. So there's this idea of being identical to your biology and somehow taking credit for it. So it's the idea that you are this biological organism, and since, and you know, you limit, I mean, I don't know what that means, but there's some sort of boundaries to your biology within your skin, let's say. And anything, any little part of you that does something, well, that's you. But then there's this other idea that you, when we say you, are really just the conscious part of you. Do you think compatibilists uh, usually have a unified perspective on which one of those is really represents you? Is it that you are the sum of your parts, or are you just the conscious part of your parts? Yeah, that's a good question, and, and I don't have an answer to that. Some, I think Dennett thinks it's it's more has to do with the um, the biological part because his whole book was Freedom Evolves, right? So it's it's about how right. evolutionarily he thinks this free will idea, you know, came about, um, which gave us these this ability to um, rationalize. To okay, well, can, can't we then in that case? So if someone takes the I guess I'm going to do what George likes to do now. So, so, so we like to we like to narrow the argument down, right? We get to the, the basics, the bones of it, and then see if we can really um, use our best intellectual efforts to reach some sort of sort of some sort of a conclusion. So, suppose we take the biological perspective. Suppose we say we'll take compatibilist position A that uh, you are the sum of your parts. You whatever. That biological organism contained within your skin and within a, a radius of a few millimeters outside of your skin, that is you. Mm-hmm. You want to throw the soul in if you believe in souls? For sure. You can have the soul too. You can have the soul and the body if you want. But sure. after that, you, yeah, sorry. Okay? But after that, there is nothing more. That's who you are. Now, if you also concede that determinism is a reality, that determinism is true, or we live in an indeterministic universe, but most things are determine the things, you know, we're certainly not responsible for the things that are not caused or things that are random. So anyway, focusing on the things that have causes, um, we don't have free will or the kind of people speak of. So to say that as being us as biological agents are kind of special doesn't really mean, it seems, just, it seems very disingenuous to say that we have this ability to change, because that's what free will is, right? That's the idea that people have. It's this idea that you could somehow control what could have happened. It's, there's you, a you, difference between saying different things could happen and saying you, whoever you is, that agent that's responsible, could control what happens. You, you said something very important there, Mitch. You said, you said the kind of free will that people think they have, or, or and I, that's not the wording yeah. you said, but you said that... You know, it's the kind of free will that people actually, you know, um, think they have the ability to do certain things, right? So this is where the compatibilists, I think, have the, most, the largest problem because they bypass the fact that people, that the majority of the population think they have this other ability, that they don't, they're not really looking at the compatibilist uh, ability, but they think they actually could have done otherwise, for example. Uh, they think that, that all those options in front of them are actually real ontological possibilities. Um, this, and the, this is shown in studies. And, and they, the studies also show that people have libertarian notions of free will. So just, just intuitively, 
Uh, people have both compatibilists, which is, isn't the type of compatibilist uh, idea that the philosophical compatibilist has. So they have these, these ones that are actually uh, incoherent logically um, on, on, their, uh, comp on the compatibilist side. And then they also have this libertarian side, where if you ask them different questions, they, they think they have free will within determinism and things like that. So um, the, lay, the common layperson, the majority of them, actually have the, you know, think they have these abilities. The compatibilist gives the, the, a definition that is totally outside of what the common lay people actually think. They, 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 it's something that's entirely different than, than these common intuitions or common yes. beliefs. And, and that's the real issue, right? The issue is about trying to give meaning to the word responsibility, trying to give meaning to it. Oftentimes, I contend that the only way to give meaning to responsibility is through some, some sort of connection between conscious intent, just like we said a few minutes ago with the sleepwalking example, right? So since we only, you know, most people, since we're talking about what most people believe in most of the time, most people, they, uh, they give out, blame and guilt based on what people are consciously aware of. So you have to be aware of what's happening and have an intent to do that thing. And then you do that thing and then you, you were said to be responsible for it. So if I wanted to walk down the street and then I walked down the street and you asked me, did you want to walk down the street? I said, yes, I wanted to. And I did. And you feel there was an impression in your mind. There was a thought that came up that said, yeah, let's, I want to walk down the street. But if you, deeper, you don't know where the thought came from, why the thought won, and why your physical body relented to that thought. There is no control in any of this, right? Things are just happening, and sometimes we feel uh, connected, we feel identical with those thoughts. And sometimes, yeah, go ahead. It's, it's even Jump more in. than that. It's like, you know, um, just present any kind of um, compatibilist definition of what free will is. The problem is that compatibilists say that they acknowledge causality, that they believe that everything is determined, you know, deterministic. They say that, but they, they don't really understand the implications of what they're saying when they agree to that. Because, like, whether, you know... If they say, like, well, free will is like, if we do what we want to do, you know, then we have free will, they're completely ignoring the fact that what we want to do has a cause, and yep. that cause has a cause, and this causal regression, you know, regresses back to before we were born. So this, you know, basically, I think part of the compatibilist problem, and again, it, it applies to any kind of compatibilist version of free will, is that... They say they, you know, buy into the determinism thing, but obviously they're not because, like, when they present these these um, these defenses of free will, they don't go as far as applying the causality to them. Uh, Chandler, why do you think that um, compatibilism is so attractive? Why is compatibilism the moderate, most popular, mainstream position on the issue, as opposed to the hard determinist standpoint? That is, just as a reminder, to say that determinism is true, therefore free will is false, or the hard incompatibilist standpoint, which is even in an indeterministic universe, free will is bogus. 
Well, you know, that's a very good question, Mitch, because I actually, I am not so sure if compatibilism is really that popular because I tend to agree with what Trick was saying earlier. A lot of people do have a more libertarian notion that it, that they could have done otherwise of their own accord, you know. And I think, here's what, why I think, if compatibilism is popular, here's why I think it's popular. Because as soon as compatibilism enters the picture, then compatibilists, <clears throat> they come up with a definition of free will. Then they say, oh yeah, we have free will, even though we live in a deterministic universe. And then that allows all the people who believe in libertarian free will to still keep believing they have free will. It's basically this big smokescreen um, that allows us to not dig deeper into the free will question because it presents these ideas as if they're compatible. It's sort of like how people say, oh, there's no conflict between science and religion and stuff like that. When people, I think compatibilism is popular because it allows everyone to just say, oh, look, there is no problem. There is no conflict. There's no logical contradiction. And so everybody can believe whatever they want because nothing can fix. Yeah, but just to clarify, though, when I said that compatibilism is popular, I mean amongst amongst people who um, academics, people who have investigated the issue, right? So the average person who hasn't really, you know, researched the issue, um, I think the kind of free will they talk about would be a sort of libertarian free will. But I think there's been several polls done and stuff. Like if you're a philosopher and you've got all the knowledge in front of you, 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 you most likely if you take the mainstream position as a philosopher, it would be the compatibilist position. Or as just some kind of person who is gone on to study this kind of issue someone who's you know naive and or someone who uh uh hasn't really um been exposed to all of the literature on free will i agree that person would have libertarian ideas like a mix it's maybe a confusion of words freedom and political freedom as well uh, but i think uh, uh yeah in the yeah. scholarly sense most of them are compatible yeah, I think we agree then because, yeah, with the general public who hasn't investigated the issue, yeah, they're more libertarian, but you're saying more among the philosophers, the academic type people, those people are compatibilists, and I have seen polls about that, so yeah, that's probably the case. So a person has to wonder why is it so popular then for philosophers to be promoting this idea of compatibilism? That's and I think that might perhaps get into the fact that philosophers they want to appeal to a wider range of people and as soon as they come out um, as a hard determinist or incompatibilist or as a libertarian, either way they kind of lose an audience, don't they? Because if they are a hard determinist, like then then all the people who believe in in free will are going to think they're full of crap and won't listen to them. And if they come out as a libertarian, then there's all these people who will say that they're crazy because of that. So if they can maintain this notion of compatibilism, then they can retain their credibility. I think it could be a financial incentive even for some philosophers. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you on Mountain Chandler. Um, there's this guy, Alfred Mealy, who, who I think... Uh, He's got this huge contract with oh, I can't 
can't remember their name, but it's for, it's for millions, basically. What's that? Templeton, Templeton, Templeton Foundation. Yeah, Templeton Foundation. And basically, you know, he's, his, it's, he's supposed to be unbiased on it, but, but you could tell that he is very biased, you know, on his position. And, and, and you could tell that he, he, he couldn't, if, even if he believed that he, you know, even if he understood that free will <laughs> didn't exist, he couldn't display that to them. Uh, or he wouldn't get funding, <laughs> basically. So, so it's yeah, it, that, that's one problem. And then I think another problem is a lot of philosophers they just can't get past the fact that they don't have free will. So, so they contrive it themselves. So it, and, it's more and, of a and, psychological you know, I, thing. I think it's it's beyond the philosophers because again, like the the social sciences, psychology, uh, sociology. <laughs> You know, they they remain silent on this. They teach, in, for example, in psychology and biology, we're a product of nature and nurture, you know, but they never make that connection. And I'm, I'm beginning to feel that part of it for some, you know, some of the more intelligent ones may be this conflict of interest that, yeah, that they don't want to go against the, the established norms, you know, like the funding and all. But I'm beginning to believe that a lot of it is that they simply they are they're hijacked by their by their beliefs, by their need to believe that, that they have a free will. You know, there's um, there's a lot of evidence in, in politics, for example, that the people and this this includes academics. People don't really vote or hold political opinions based on the facts of it, you know, for example, with climate change, they, they hold their opinions based on what they need to believe. So I think, yeah, this goes way beyond philosophers. And, you know, because we understand that it's such a clear case, I mean, like, you know, causality makes free will impossible, you know, period, exclamation point. Because it's so simple, you've got you to gotta wonder why, you know, or how, what mechanism is so strongly basically corrupting their their reasoning to to not allow them to get this very simple truth but but again it, it spans you know it's throughout the entirety of academia i'm not i don't know if there's there may be maybe neuroscientists may be unique among academians in that they you know if you ask the majority of them they may um say free will is impossible but i think for the rest even the medical profession you know will, will believe in free will so this this is pervasive yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, we've talked many times, against about about the consequences of free will. I don't know if we need to go into that in detail, but for some reason, compatibilists seem to have a deaf ear when it comes when uh, free will skeptics explain, you know, uh, very rationally what the real consequences would be if society at large rejected the notion of free will. It would just be an increase in empathy people would be more compassionate because you wouldn't be able to, well, you could, you could still blame people, but it would be irrational if you knew that free will, you know, is not set. So um, it wouldn't make any sense to do it. So people would most likely not do it. Um, and I don't know why people feel like having free will is a good thing. It seems to be like the worst thing that could happen because it means every single time you've done something the wrong way, you are purposely doing it the wrong way because somehow – actually, this makes no sense to me, actually. I was about to say because you're a bad person, but then I realized that's an indictment on free will yet again because what yeah. would make you a bad person? It's so illogical. I don't even know how to pretend 
to think like a compatibilist, to be honest. I, I think the fear of compatibilists, or the fear compatibilists have, is is that um, people are going to revert to the more fatalistic notions, and I think uh, yes. I think that they they automatically actually assume that that is, you know, that the fatalistic notions make sense, so they don't understand the difference between fatalism and determinism necessarily. So. You know, and, and the, these fatalist notions are problematic. Um, you know, there, there there have been studies that show you know that people do derive these fatalistic notions uh, initially. You know, because they're you know through confusions, usually based on their own free will belief that they had prior, that they um, you know when they, when they're when they're create when a confusion is created with them and they and they kind of lean towards the deterministic side. They get these fatalistic ideas uh, initially because they don't really understand the topic, so it's it's an education thing, you know. Uh, and compatibilists, I obviously don't think that we could actually educate people on what it actually means that we don't have free will. And that's this, that's. I'm glad I'm glad you brought it up. There's this really strange confusion with fatalism. It is it's so confused. So, so sometimes you're right. What, what compatibilists do is. They they sort they they won't admit it, but they say free will is nonsense. Essentially, that's what they're saying, and they, they try to define something else, freedom of action, something like that, as being free will instead. And then say if we don't do this, this will be the outcome. And they say people sometimes they say people will become fatalistic. And I agree with you, Trick. If that were true, you know, we could do studies and research and find out. What would be the psychological impact that people would have once they realized uh, or came to the conclusion that you know they've, re they've rejected free will, that free will is nonsense? That is a real thing because we can't control how information affects us. You know, information could affect us in whatever way. But the confusion lies in when compatibilists say, "Why not do this?" If uh, the world is true. If everything is truly all determined, then why should I do this? But there's a simple rebuttal to that. Well, you have no choice, so you don't really have to worry about whether or not you're going to do action A or action B, because the deter the determinist is arguing that what's going to happen is going to happen. So there's no room for you to try to not do what is going to happen. It's either going to happen or it's not going to happen. Right, but yeah, Mitch, and they, and there's more oh. to that. In other words, like a lot of um, people who believe in free will sincerely believe that, you know, if we don't have a free will, their life all of a sudden lacks meaning. They see themselves as puppets, as robots, you know, and all of a sudden nothing that they do really <coughs> matters because if nothing is up to them. So, you know, yeah, they're, right, they're, but, it, but I was, but I'm just going to say, so that, so that, that idea, right? I, I mean, that's a possibility, right? But the point is that might happen to you. Or that might not happen to you. So, so that's the issue. You can't control whether or not you become that person who becomes fatalistic or not. However, given the right influences, in this case, the right influences would be investigating what we would argue are the, the likely consequences of um, rejecting free will on rational grounds. That is, realizing that it should make the world a more compassionate place because you don't blame people. Realizing that you should forgive yourself. You should no longer feel guilty about the things you do. It's not your fault. So if you, if you are impacted by those influences, perhaps you will go in a certain direction as opposed to the fatalistic direction. 
There's no reason to assume, from my standpoint, I see no reason. It certainly didn't make me become fatalistic. Everyone I know who has investigated the issue of free will and taken some skepticism and eventually landed somewhere in hard incompatibilism or hard determinism or impossibilism, something like that, they've all become more enlightened, more compassionate people. So as long as you arrive at that conclusion through rational thinking, through the literature, through the arguments, I think all the information suggests, you know, a, a walk completely opposed to fatalism. Right. So, so the compatibilists are worried that, you know, people aren't going to get that information and then they're going to be told that they don't have free will. And for some reason, that's going to cause them to do the most horrific things. <laughs> so so they just leap to that, that conclusion um, that, you know, pe- people are just, you know, they'll just do the horrific things because they think, oh, I have no free will. I'm just going to do what I want. I'm going to do the most horrific things like, as if, you know, people psychologically, you know, want to do those horrific things to begin with. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Bizarre. Well, guys, I think we need to ask a serious question here because, first of all, yes, there is a confusion between determinism and fatalism, and people come to determinism once they actually study the issue. Um, But we need to ask the question, between free will belief and a fatalistic type of belief, which of those is worse? What do you think? Fatalistic belief and fatalism in general about anything. I... Um, yeah, like between fatalism and free will belief, I, I actually I tend to think that fatalism is still better than believing that you have free will and everything is up to you. And I and I don't know how you guys might see that because I might I might want to make a case for why I think that, but I wonder um, what you guys think. Which which. Um, which leads to a uh, if those were the only two views and there was no such thing as determinism, which there is of course, but people were either free willers or they were fatalists. Which of those people do you think would be happier or more moral of those two groups? Chandler, I agree with you. I, I think that uh, if somebody tried to live under the fatalist perspective, you know that what's going to happen is going to happen regardless of what they do they'd very quickly learn that that doesn't work. You know, like a test is coming up and they say to themselves, well, you know, I'm going to either like do well or not. So it doesn't matter whether I study or not. But again, you know, that's so, such a gross misunderstanding of determinism when people say no, no, that. I'm, no, yeah, Mitch, yeah. we're talking about fatalism now. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. So, I, I, so I, I know. you're right. So, so like, so, I mean, what, what we try to do is like, we try to explain to them that determinism is not fatalism. Fatalism presupposes a knowledge of the future that we don't have. In other words, nobody can say that they know for sure that something's going to happen regardless of what we do or not. But, but again, Chandler, I think you're right. I think that like the fatalist position is, you know, I think is easily, you know, um, subjected to, to proofs in life, to tests, that would show that it's unworkable, whereas the free will belief, you know, it, it's like it, it, it doesn't have those, the, the negative effects of it, like the, the hostility, the conflict and all, most people don't, don't, um, don't arrive at, at those implications, those negative, you know, aspects but of the belief. Can, can we just address, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, I agree with everything. So, if, you know, let's address 
that scenario for a second. So the fatalist says, I have a test coming up. Everything is predetermined. Not just determined, but predetermined is what the fatalist is implying. Predestined. So, predestined. Yep. And, and so... Um, and so no matter what I do, I'm either going to pass this test or fail this test. Therefore, I won't study. So there's right. obviously a logical error after the therefore, the conclusion. Because the real therefore is, therefore, I don't know if I'm going to end up studying or not. That's, that's, that's the thing you could say. You could say, a test is coming up. I wonder if my course in life will lead me to a path where I end up studying for this test in the next 30 minutes. Or if it leads me to a path where I do not end up studying for this test in the next 30 minutes. I have no idea what's going to happen. That's a reasonable thing to say. Or to say I'm unable to predict it because it seems too difficult to predict what's going to happen. To say that you are not studying because everything is predestined doesn't really make any sense. Because if it's predestined you don't know what you're going to end up doing. So again, you're not choosing to do that thing. So, so that's one of the thing that that's the thing that really irks me about fatal. It's like they don't see the very clear logical fallacy right there. Yeah, but fatal fatalism doesn't necessarily have to do with causality. So, so, so whether or not they study for the test <laughs> is kind of irrelevant towards right. Uh, if they're destined to fail or pass the test. So, so in that in that sense, fatalism is kind of there's at least a futility or or defeatism basically that absolutely you know whatever whatever is going to happen is going to happen no matter what you do if 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 you study for the test you know you're either going to fail it or te or pass it depending on whatever your destiny is and if you don't study for a test the same destiny will happen so either way that same destiny is going to happen so it. it it doesn't make sense to study for the test, really, if, if you don't want to study for the test, because that destiny is is what's going to happen. Right. Yeah, but, but that decision is also something that is going to happen that you can't control. You can't control since you see that's that's the, that's the weakness in the in the in the fatalist argument. This thing that feels like a decision right now, if everything is predestined, is a false decision that feels like a decision, which is not a decision. So you're not even making the decision about whether or not to make a decision. So, so that's so that so that's <laughs> yeah. that is that is the issue. That but is we all issue. know that fatalistic thinking is is it doesn't make sense, right? It, I mean, right. determinism right. obviously trumps that. Our our conscious thoughts are do play a part of you know the the actions that we take and and the causality that leads up to our consciousness play a part in that. So that's the that's the main difference between that and fatalism. But the problem is People that initially learn that they don't have free will and they don't they're not learned through a proper mechanism. They're not they're not taught what it means that they don't have free will. They automatically they're, they're I think it's their their free will belief makes them assume that fatalism is the next step rather than a logical determinism. And that, and that I mean, you could see that in certain studies, such as the one you know that causes cheating and stuff like that. These are people that have free will belief that are are just temporarily mixed up, basically, and then they, yeah. you know, they'll, they'll cheat or something because there's like, oh, there are also so studies I that show that people are less likely to give people harsh prison sentences when they uh, 
when they've been right. introduced to the arguments against free will. So there's right. been studies that have shown positive consequences. That exactly. So that. so once once they learn and they they understand um, what it means that you have right. free will or you don't have free will. I'm sorry that you don't have free will. That at that point, then 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 a different mechanism takes hold and people actually have a rational. Um, yes. So I guess what we're saying is we need people to investigate free will the right way and we need right. them to not give up halfway through. We don't we we can't right. have them get to the part where they go, oh, no, free will doesn't exist and then close the book. Right. But the problem they is to, right? the problem yeah. is for the compatibilists. We have to tell them, look, we we understand that there's this, you know, mid problem that that happens that 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 could happen between these two stages but we need to get people to this next stage for the progression of humanity basically i mean it, it's an important step so i mean it's the same thing for any any belief if if it's the belief in i don't know if people believed in some <laughs> some fairies for example and they thought those fairies uh caused them to do great things but in reality, it causes you know them to do harmful things. At sure, first, it might there, be there a might be a progression shock from. Them. Yeah, I see what you mean, right? Yeah. One way, if, one way to address compatibilist arguments is to say that them. All right, you're defining free will in a way that's different the way than what um, determinists define free will. You know, we grant them that, but then we we get them to acknowledge the free will term aside. Because of causality, what we do is not up to us, you know, because, again, like I think that they're stuck on the free will thing. They want to have this this free will based on this 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 term, this, you know, this this, this concept. But again, it, it, to the extent that they truly understand um, determinism and causality, then they can't logically, you know, say that anything is up to us, you know, to any of us. So, like, yeah. again, we may be able to get them to concede on that. Just yeah, like let's, let's address we have that. What, is, what, is, what does up to us mean? What does that mean? So, so again, this is back to, like, do you guys agree that it has to be conscious intent? Is that, does that have to be it? Because I, I, I think this is what people say, right? So if we're trying to address the free will that most people are talking about, people can see they don't blame so many kinds of people. They don't blame children who don't know things. They don't blame people who are ignorant of the law or who just don't have all the knowledge about some sort of issue. They don't blame uh, people who are determined to be mentally ill, right? But for some reason, there's a certain state of existence where people are, where they see that they think most people somehow, most people, most of the time, when they're awake, live in this sort of bubble somewhere in their mind. There's this, there's this place in their mind where they live. And most people have a certain level of control somewhere because they are consciously aware. And it's when people act during these moments, and only these moments, and only these people, then we can say they're responsible. Are you guys, do you guys think that's an accurate assessment of what most people feel like uh, responsibility is about? Well, yeah. yes and no. The extreme example, yes, but like there's a lot of people who would concede that if a person's conscious, right, but the person's under the influence of alcohol or some other kind of drug, some agent, especially when it's not like under their control, 
you know, then they would recognize, well, you know, the person, you know, is really being compelled to do what they did. There's, there's various degrees of responsibility based on that. Uh, and here's the, that's a very good point. That's another, another area where someone might say, oh, they're also irresponsible. And there's a funny thing about alcohol. If, if someone was diagnosed with alcoholism, if that person was said to be an alcoholic, they, would blame, they wouldn't blame that person as much. They would say, oh, you have a disease. But if that person drank heavily one night, they would say, you chose to drink heavily that night, and now you are responsible for the bad things you did when you got drunk. Right? That's the usual, that's how most people perceive things, right? You, you made a poor decision getting drunk this night. You're not really an alcoholic, but tonight you made a bad decision, you drove drunk, and you hit someone with a car. So what we're really pushing back against is that. That's the only thing we have to attack, right? This is the only thing left for the compatibilist to defend. Everything yeah, else is, is when already... It, when we talk about this responsibility word um, or moral re- moral responsibility, there, there's there's the weak sense and then there's a strong sense. So the, the weak sense basically is um, the fact that our interactions with that person can can create a utility, basically. Um, so, so if if we say punish a person, it might deter them later. For example, so we might have to create deterrence. So, so in that sense, we we could we could say responsibility in the weak sense. In the stronger sense um, of saying that they're deserving of punishment, for example, that is the sense that we are kind of rejecting, and that's the kind of the, the sense that the compatibilists kind of conflates they 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 understand that that people don't have the stronger sense of that moral responsibility and they have the weaker sense um but they don't say it they they kind of let the two blend into each other so 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 people can have that stronger sense of i just want to say uh, one quick thing you can continue your thought i just want to say oftentimes on this show i think we've used terms like pragmatic responsibility versus fundamental responsibility and i think these are synonymous with what you're talking about it seems where we'll say fundamental responsibility is the idea that it's what a free will believer would say you have free will you were fundamentally responsible for what you did because you chose to do it where pragmatic responsibility is well technically even if you're not responsible you're the thing that is doing that thing the physical object and we need to make precautions whether it's for the future, whether it's to help you to reform or whether you're a threat to society right now, something needs to be done, whether or not it's your fault. Right. So if we look at it in the sense of, of um, incarceration, for example, it's not that the person deserves to be incarcerated, right. but it's more like a quarantine. So, so if somebody has a, a nasty disease, they're quarantined, right? But we don't ever say, oh, that person deserves to be quarantined. They, they deserve... <coughs> To be, you know, moved away from society and not, you know, not able to interact with anybody. It's just that they have this disease that that's contagious, right? So, so it's the same type of thing. You know, we have to pragmatically quarantine that person so other people don't get sick. Yeah, I think that's a great example because a lot of people will say that we're gonna say that nobody should go to jail or anything like that. I mean, that's not what we're saying at all. 
we're pointing out that the reason that we would send somebody to jail or whatever else we do with people that we consider dangerous is not because of them deserving something. It's to protect the rest of us. That's the whole point. So the whole pragmatic responsibility is about being pragmatic. What's practical? What helps us uh, exist? Basically survival. And it's more than that. We, we also understand that, that the people don't deserve to be victims. So, so yes, th those people don't deserve to be put in prison, but people don't deserve to be their victims either. So we weigh the two and we say, no, sorry, we're going to, you know, put them in the prison even though they don't deserve it because those other people don't they don't deserve also to be the victim of this other person so so we have to you know it, it isn't it's more it's more logical than we actually think it is it's not it's not just you know pragmatic it's the fact that people aren't deserving of the wrath of these other people uh, but compatibilists will say that you know they, they, they want the more stronger sense the um, what did you say it was, Mitch? The non fundamental, a fundamental moral. Yeah, sometimes we say pragmatic. Fundamental is the word we often use. Yeah, so so they want they they want that fundamental moral responsibility, and some compatibilists try to argue for that um, fundamental responsibility as well. So there's there's um, Frankfurt, for example. He had he he comes up with these kind of scenarios that try to argue for. Uh, moral responsibility without the ability to have done otherwise. So he said he so agrees with with the free will skeptic that people couldn't have done otherwise, but he says that doesn't matter. They still have this moral responsibility, which um, a lot of people have you know criticized him on. Uh, for example, Dirk Parab Paraboom, who is uh, another Harding compatibilist. Uh, yes, of, yes, I'm familiar with Paraboom. Yeah, so he kind of goes into why you know the frankfurt type scenarios don't really work um but yeah so so that's what they try to do <laughs> that that's that's their goal basically what do you guys think about thoughts how does the compatibilist argue argue that so certainly a compatibilist could not argue that one is responsible for what one doesn't think about correct <laughs> well, no, no, they would they would claim negligence. They would claim, well, no, a, a morally well, responsible. Negligence is different, though. I mean, that's a well, weird. Well, you're saying you're saying that like that they wouldn't hold somebody responsible for what they don't think, right? The thought never my occurred. point. My point is like, for example, let's say a person didn't think to be careful, you know, while they were driving, and then they they you know, hurt somebody or something. You know, basically, you know, compatibilists would hold them responsible from the standpoint that they should have been, you know, they should have been careful. They should have been more mindful. Right. And it comes down to a belief that they could have been more careful. They could have thought of things that they weren't thinking of. And so it's still a belief in it could have done otherwise. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to, sorry, go ahead, please. <laughs> Even though they don't actually agree that people could have done otherwise, so 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 yeah. On one aspect, they agree with the um, the free will skeptic that we couldn't have done otherwise. But on the other aspect, they don't they don't ever point that position out. So they kind of um, bypass that 
all together and try to say, okay, people are responsible regardless. They, they don't even actually point out the fact that people couldn't have done otherwise. They think, oh, that's not necessary for people to know, basically. So it's kind of like they want to hide that fact, conceal it so almost. decisively and conclusively, I think any person who's being fair and rational, talking about this, uh, the weaker form of moral responsibility versus the stronger one, the pragmatic responsibility versus fundamental responsibility. I think any rational person ha must concede that you are not fundamentally responsible for doing what you did not think of doing. It doesn't make any sense. If the thought never occurred to you, you cannot be responsible for the thought not occurring to you fundamentally. So very clearly, that means fundamental is the, you know, the, the strong one, as you said, right? The, uh, this, yeah. is the, this is what a free will believer is usually implicitly you know, asserting, invoking. Sure. And if anyone disagrees with that, I think they've disqualified themselves from the argument. Because that, that, that seems to be a place where we could find common ground. No matter what your stance is on the position... Yeah, but the, com the compatibilists would, would say, oh, well, what about the situation where you're deliberating between three things? So obviously, then you're thinking about three different things. Well, but I'm, well one, one, one thing at a time, though. I'm saying the situation where the thought never occurred to you. I'm saying yeah. you have to sit down at the table, and everyone who is talking about this issue, who is being fair and is knowledgeable, has to stop what they're saying at that moment and go, okay, you win, I concede. Right there, you're right. But again, no Mitch, they, they would claim that you're not, you know, that that thought coming to you, which we're defining as a moral thought. No, the thought didn't come to you. No, thought, I know. So this is a situation that's what I'm where... saying. Okay. That's what I'm saying. They would claim that that thought not coming to you, which is a moral thought, would, would basically um, describe or, or indict you in terms of immorality. They would claim that to be a moral person is to have that thought. Okay, but I'm saying that's, that's fair enough. We could dissect that later. But before we even get to that, I'm just saying at that moment, I think they have, must concede, though, you are not responsible for not having the thought. Well, that's what the whole principle of negligence in law is about. We can't, you know, in other words, somebody said, well, you know, I just didn't think to, to you know, to uh, shovel my sidewalk, whatever. I didn't think to whatever. It didn't occur to me. You know, there's this, this principle of law of like, you know, I don't know what it's called <coughs> legally, but it's like, you know, we assume that the common person would have a certain kind of a mindset, would, would, would be cognizant of, of certain, you know, certain ethical or moral principles. So like, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, the ignorance is not a defense in the law. So in that same way, to, to free will believers, you know, just not having the thought would not free one from from the, uh, the responsibility for what they did based well, on not but, having. But remember, that we thought. said two different types of responsibility. So I'm saying, in terms of fundamental responsibility, I'm saying even a free will believer in that very narrow scenario, just in that very particular scenario, not the thought not occurring to you to sweep your drive just didn't occur to you. No, I know they would. They would hold you responsible for it not occurring to you. That's yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I agree with George on this. They, they would. You're saying 
You're saying, no, no, I'm saying fundamentally. That's, but that's how? That doesn't make any is. sense. How could it, of course, course it doesn't make, make sense. You're right, man. That's the whole point, Mitch. It doesn't make sense, but people blame people for their thoughts, the ones they do have or the ones they don't have. They blame them for either. That's what free will believers do. Because usually, you know, the way I see – I mean there's, so, there's, a, there's an abundance. I should clarify this to any listeners. There are abund- an abundance of compatibilist positions. The only thing you need to be a compatibilist is to say – I have a model or I follow this model that I think allows determinism and free will to co- coexist. They're compatible with each other. So when we say, you know, so it's probably unfair to put all compatibilists under the same umbrella, just as how all, not all free will skeptics give themselves the same, you know, some make, some make stronger claims about reality than others. Right, but all yeah, no, th- there's know. definitely some compatibilists that would totally agree with you that that if the thought didn't occur to you, right, yeah, then that that's you know, yeah, they they'd agree with you on that. There, there's, I, I think there'd be a lot of actually compatibilists that would actually agree with that, but then they'd say, but that but that's not where the free will comes. The free will comes from when you do have the three you know different options and you, okay, you are fine. able to deliberate between them. Well, I think we made a step forward then. Good. So we've disqualified all the all the compatibilists who get off the train at that point. See ya. We're moving on. Okay? Yeah, because yeah, I don't exactly. think I'm not trying to say like we won or they lost. What I'm trying to say is I don't think there's any more room for gaining any, you know, no more room for uh, there's no more conversation that we could possibly have if you can't agree to that. If you can't make that minor concession. You know, I don't think there's we can really go any further. So let's let's continue with the other branch. So the compatibilists. So you're saying there are other scenarios though, Trick, where some compatibilists would push back. They'd say, okay, fine, in that situation. But what's mm-hmm. the situation you were describing again, where you'd say there was some kind of deliberation? Where you have where you have three moral options to choose from, and you deliberate between those three options, and then you choose one of them. Right. So of course, you know, the Determinist, our determinist goes, uh, well, they're just competing urges. You don't control the strongest urge wins. Or so for, if, so, for example, if you happen to have the brain of a logical person, perhaps the most logical option will win. If you happen to have the brain of an emotional person, perhaps the, the, uh, the option that, you know, that pleads to your emotions is the one that will win. But in either case, it's just a bunch of things fighting with each other. There's no sense of control there, and one of them wins. So, so the compatibilist would say, say you have two options. You, found, you find a wallet, and you could A, return the wallet, or B, uh, keep the wallet for yourself and keep all the, mo- or keep all the money in the wallet. You know? So those are your two options. <laughs> if you decide to keep the wallet, then uh, you're morally responsible. You're, 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 you're held morally responsible at that point. That's, that's what the compatibilist would say. But obviously, we're we're saying that you know there's something that's causing your mental state to want to keep that wallet. <laughs> keep right. That, keep the exactly. Money and, and we would also say you would be pragmatically responsible, but not fun. In other words, I'm not blaming you for being the person who you are. You are the person who, for whatever reason, due to your biology, in fact, all the all the influences that made you who you are and drove you to that point in time and space. You were the person who stole, who kept the wallet. And. If I want to, I could try to help you become a different person by exposing you to other influences. But it doesn't make any sense to blame you for becoming who you became. So right. it's, that, it's that simple. 
Right. They, so, so we say that only the weak sense, only the, the non-fundamental um, pragmatic sense of responsibility applies. And, and, I, and I think some, some compatibilists actually agree with us on that, but that's the sense that they stress, but they, they kind of don't address the fact that we don't have the fundamental sense. So, so in other words, they'll say, oh yeah, we're responsible, and here's why we have this this pragmatic sense of responsibility, but they don't ever say that we don't have the fundamental responsibility. In other words, they kind of keep that hidden <laughs> from from people because they don't want people to know that part of it. And that, that I think is, is part of the problem with compatibilism. And I think that we already know some of the reasons why people don't want to give up the idea of fundamental responsibility. Because then it leads into a whole bunch of philosophical as well as religious questions, you know, about, about you know, people being deserving of heaven and hell and that kind of stuff. And I know that um, most secular people are not concerned with things like that. However, because we have so many people who do believe in this idea of deserving reward or punishment, whether in this life or in an afterlife, that's why the free will question is so important. Because you know what? <clears throat> I think that if we were in a world full of just atheists, this free will debate would end a lot sooner. But people have to have free will to maintain their beliefs that people deserve to go to hell and that kind of thing. Yeah, but Chandler, it, it goes beyond the religion. In other words, the people who control the world, for the most part, are the very rich and successful. You know, whether it's in politics, they control the institutions. And for them to admit that nobody has a free will all, all of a sudden calls into question whether people should be making, you know, billions of dollars, you know, while some people have none, um, have, you know, too little to survive on, you know, based on, on something as, as, as uh, arbitrary as pure luck. So I think, you know, a lot of times it's, it's the rich who um, a lot of my, I would think, you know, a lot of, you know, really rich people get that we don't have a free will, but they don't want people to know about it because they're, you know, it's a, a self-interest thing. Yeah, I think you're right about that, George, because, you know, it comes down to the fact that the rich people they're the ones who are able to get things funded or defunded. They're the ones who can, because politics is a money game, for example. And so basically the richest of the people will be the ones who are heard, the ones who are believed. And so I do think that for those people, for them, they, they want a sense of feeling that it's up to them, their success. That's the other part of it. Their egos involved, you know, like, you know, um, and this this doesn't just apply to rich people, successful people who've like succeeded in academia in whatever field, you know, you deny them the free will. All of a sudden their ego explodes. It's like they don't have a, a reason to feel superior to others. And, and then they, you know, they feel they've worked hard for that. Yeah. And here's an interesting question. Would people in a world where nobody believed in free will, would people work as hard at achievement as they do or would they find happiness in something different entirely than competition? That's a good point. I think people work too hard to begin with, so it might be a good thing. Yeah. In a certain sense, 
um, I think people would be more grateful and people would still work hard at doing what they want to do naturally. But I, I think that there, uh, that the free will belief promotes a sort of competition and inequality. And that's why it's so bad and why I still hold to the idea that even fatalism is still better than free will belief, even though it's not correct. You know, just switching gears just a little bit, but there is, um, and there's still like two, so I think we've talked about, we talked about one kind of compatibilism, uh, one kind of compatibilistic perspective where we said um, those compatibilists would, they're disqualified from the conversation if they don't agree that in a very, very narrow situation, very specific circumstance where the thought does not occur to you, you should not, you cannot be held fundamentally responsible. And then we said, okay, we move past that. And then we said, well, more compatibilists or the ones with supposedly stronger positions are the ones who um, would say, well, there's some strange scenarios where strange things happen, and this is when you are fundamentally uh, responsible. But there are also some other kinds of uh, compatibilist perspectives, right? So there is, the, um, there is for example, the, the mechanism. So we've heard this before, right? Sometimes free will is described as a mechanism, so it's like, Everything is caused, everything happens, but then there is the extra part of you. I think earlier in the conversation we mentioned that, so maybe we can just go back to that for a second. How do you guys feel about that approach? Those who claim that uh, we, by being biological beings uh, or by being human, there's something special, not necessarily supernatural, but something special and unknown, and science just hasn't discovered it yet. I, th I that, think this. Oh, it's quite. Mitch, I'm sorry, you weren't. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that. I was just going to finish this. Just to say that. So there's some mechanism that we somehow can reach, to, you know, do the deliberations you spoke of. I think this gets into kind of like the hard problems of consciousness and and things like that, where where people understand that consciousness is kind of this something that's seems special right so it, okay. it's something different than most other things in the world right so so they they kind of attribute that consciousness i think to free will the fact that that people have this this conscious ability yeah this they they share this with libertarians libertarians say well we have this special ability that gives us free will and like that we can you know that causality doesn't apply to us, and these kinds of compatibilists that that would say, um, you know, th that have the similar stance would say the same thing. Basically, um, that um, I'm sorry, lost my thought. Go ahead. <laughs> Basically, Check. that 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 causality and consciousness. Well, that they're not recognizing, I guess, that consciousness has the same type of causality that as everything else in the universe that that it's not something that's that's special there's not there's nothing that's that's i guess different really <laughs> except for it being consciousness <laughs> so so I, exactly. I, it, it yeah. doesn't it doesn't supersede the, the laws of nature right yeah conscious just means that you know what you're doing even though you're not in control of what you're doing <laughs> Yeah, it's it's awareness. It's just a byproduct of all the stuff that's happening in your brain. That's you know, that's right. what it is. Well, I, I happen what... to I happen to be a mental causationist. So I, some people probably disagree with me on that here, but I think that there is 
mental causation that that our consciousness does cause things you know us to do things that it's not just an output of the physical that that's kind of like a byproduct um but i think that it is an output of the physical that we don't have any control over and hence the actions that we take because of it we don't also don't have any control over so it's the same it's the same causal mechanism it's just that it's a downward and upward causality type of situation. Well, the other thing is like a lot of people assume that causality is just a physical construct. It's just a physical law of nature that um, doesn't apply to quote unquote non-physical things. Causality is also a logical construct. In other words, it's just as, as, as difficult to explain something if we were to define it as happening spiritually and uncaused as it would be to define it as physically and uncaused. Yeah, I, I think the word we should probably introduce, I think we've introduced it before, right? Epiphenomenalism. I think uh, Mike Walsh has talked about it a little bit. You know, I have a big fancy word. All it means is that, you know, the physical stuff causes the special mental stuff, things like thought and consciousness that we hold to such esteem, we find so mysterious. It's this idea, well, you know what? The physical stuff causes that to happen. And Trick said, you know, he might not have, I'm not sure if we all agree, and maybe he's right about that. He's saying, and it doesn't even stop there, perhaps even that consciousness could cause other things. Well, regardless of that, you know, no free will. There's no control in any of that. Whether or not, it doesn't end there. So the chain right. would start with physical events and then go right. to the conscious ones and perhaps that yeah. can have an impact. Well, I, I'm not an epiphenomenalist. I, I'm, I'm a physicalist, which means I think that consciousness is just a property of the physical. <laughs> so, so I'm not a, a um, you have, you have dualists, people who think that the right. consciousness is separate from the physical. And I think that that might be another part that plays into people's conception of, you know, free will is that, you know, they think consciousness is something separate you know but i'm a physicalist where i think they're both the same thing really it's just the property of it kind of like uh wetness of water is a or wetness is a property of water or roundness is a property of a ball but it all plays into the causality of rolling or sinking and things like that so well it's a possibility i think another type of uh, uh compatibilism that we didn't we sort of touched upon is the word soup compatibilist so, so this is the one where the really evasive kind, and I think this is the, the most contentious, I think. <laughs> What's the word soup? I, the, so this is the one where the definitions are constantly changing. I'm sure you guys have seen this. It's where um, they're constantly scrambling to uh, define free will in different ways. And anytime you think you've nailed the definition, it goes, that's not the free will. So it's the one that where there's that disconnect. I mean, we said earlier there's a disconnect of what people generally believe in and what compatibilists uh, claim that we have. But after when you continue the conversation and you dig deeper and you ask them, you never really get to a point where they just honestly and openly concede, you are correct. We do not have free will. Yeah. We have this. And I would like to call this free will. That's not what happens. They, they don't say... <laughs> You are correct. We don't have free will. We have this other thing. You don't like the name? Let's think of a name. That's not what happens. It goes, yeah, the type of free will you're saying we have, we don't have. But we have free will. This yeah. other thing, 
isn't just an alternative to free will. That is free will, which is... I like the ones that, that you know? narrow down criteria. So, so for example, yeah. they'll say, uh, free will is just the ability to do what you want, right? And then, and then I might say, well, okay, then, then somebody that has a, a microchip implanted in their brain in which uh, causes them to want to do something and then they do that something means they have free will. And then they'll, then they'll say, oh, well, I mean, free will is the ability to do your, what you want. As long as you don't have, you know, as long as it's uh, uh, yes, that's the you're good. organic or whatever, and you don't have anything constraining. I'm like, okay, then how about a tumor? And they're like, well, then, then you can't have any physical ailments either. And then and I'll say, well, how about you just you <laughs> just have you're just mentally insane? What, <laughs> so, what, so, what is a bigger it, it, what is a bigger constraint than the physical brain? Well, that's the thing. Always have it. All, it all comes <laughs> down to the fact that the brain is a configuration, just like the. Uh, you know, microchip or the tumor or the uh, or the mental illness that's in the brain. It's it's the same. It's just a it's just a different con configuration. So and that's something they're not getting by saying that. So so they're trying to reduce things down. They'll say, oh no no, you can't have that criteria. You can't have that criteria. You can't have that criteria. You know, it has to be this very very restricted criteria then. So, but but then it takes it away from this whole just ability to do what you want. All those people had the ability to do what they want. It's just that they were causally constrained on what they wanted to do. So, yeah, again, it's, it's a really evasive kind of definition because it's like you start from somewhere and you're purposely avoiding the main issue that the free will skeptic wants to discuss by just asserting, you know, from the get go. Oh, the ability to do what you want. You know, it's it's making they'll say like it's making a choice. It's like oh, we have causality, but then we make a choice. What are you talking about? Yeah. So, what well, maybe, maybe maybe we what need to like you know, Mitch, if the compatibilists are you know, are our principal opposition in this, maybe we need to address the issue more so, um, much more so from the conceptual side rather than from the terminology side. In other words, like you know, get them to acknowledge without using the word free will that absolutely nothing is fundamentally up to us, you know, that causality, you know, because that, you know, um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if they could come up with, with a, um, a logical argument for that, you know, because basically, like, like we're saying, you know, the way they defend free will is simply by redefining it away from the traditional debate. So if we if we attack their you know free will without using the the term, I'm not sure how they'd go about defending it. You know the the, the concept. Interesting. So you're saying the term itself is problem. You're saying without having the ability to say free will, they, they it would be difficult for them to uh, defend their position. Is right. So if we, if we take let's say if we take a two-step um, strategy that we yeah. we just really come out with defenses uh, or refutations of quote-unquote free will that don't use the term that just you know explain it without you know use of that at all and get their concession on that then the next step might be easier yeah but that, that i think we already have i think for most part actually that most compatibilists would concede to that and and we concede that that people have the free will that that the compatibilists have redefined basically so so i think those are actually concessions that exist the problem is with semantics, actually. It's, it's with them wanting to use the term free will and causing confusions in the masses 
by using that term. So, I mean, so that's, it's, it's, that's the it's main so thing. It's so easy to escape free will. All you have to do is say will. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have a will. Yes. Okay? Great. Yeah. That's right. it. That, that's the end. But, and it's then they say, well, free. see, that's the, it's their problem that's of freedom. That's, a, that's another problem that we, yeah. we should talk about is, is their, their notion of freedom is something that's away from – it doesn't qualify the word will. Uh, it qualifies something else. They're saying I agree. Uh, they have the freedom to act without a gun pointed to their head or something like that, you know, and they can w do what they will with what their will dictates them to do without a gun pointed to their head. So that that's the freedom that they'll use. Whether we're saying when you use the term free will, obviously free will means free is qualifying how yeah, free the will is or freedom of the will exactly. so you're implying there's something else going on and, and that's there's what something. they want to change up they want to change up basically freedom of action away from certain specific constraints not causal constraints they don't they don't care yeah. about that they just want to talk about specific constraints such as drugs or guns or things like that and have move. you guys have you guys um um, checked out that James Miles video where he's been interviewed by a uh, European CEO and he cites a study that says that the vast majority of philosophers um, who may believe in free will don't believe in free choice because I, I haven't re actually followed up on that, I would, you know, but basically, apparently, if you frame the question in the right way, then you get more people to like say, yeah, we we, we can't choo uh, freely choose. Right. Well, you know, George, I read James Miles' book, and that seemed to be what he was saying that even under the compatibilist definitions of free will, there's still no free choice because it's a thing, well, they couldn't have done it otherwise. They had no choice, but they're still responsible anyway. Right. But what I'm saying in this interview, he cited a survey, whereas, you know, I think it was like over 80 percent of philosophers didn't believe in free choice. And again, I haven't followed up on is this. It, is there really a distinction? The distinc what? I don't I've I don't come, understand. I've come, the I've come, I've come across the issue before, but it's been a while. It's a. Uh, I have to do some research into it, perhaps, but I've I have come across this before. Because yeah, right. I mean, like with with these um, with this research to determine whether a person is fundamental is responsible for something, you know, a lot of times they'll get different answers um, based on how they ask the question. We might right. have even discussed it in an earlier uh, show. I might have. Well, I brought it up, but I, I, you know, I haven't followed up on it since. I was wondering if you guys, you know, were familiar with the survey. Yeah. I, I haven't heard about it. I don't. I don't. I'd like to look it up though. That would be an interesting survey to read. But yeah, I, I could see that happening actually. I mean, I I, I understand. I I think that compatibilists do agree with the free will skeptic on the abilities that we say we don't have. They just don't want to openly put that out to the public, and they don't want to call that free will because that p openly puts it out to the public. <laughs> so the, the, I, I those mean, are the problems. How, how is a choice made? How exactly? Do we make choices? See, when I would say we, we actually—I I actually say we do make choices. I just say well, that uh, th those how? choices are constrained. We we how deliberate do, between different options, do, even though the, how do we deliberate? How? How? How do we deliberate? 
we think well, it's about. All, it's all at the level of the unconscious, because that's where the, the data for deliberation is. That is that's where the process of deliberation <laughs> takes place. That's where the principles upon which we deliberate take place. So, so like, then that's know, not, exactly. Well, so it, it comes to the conscious why? forefront. So, so we, 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 yeah, the, the non-conscious, unconscious or non-conscious process create conscious processes of, of saying, oh, here's, our, here's the three <laughs> options. And we can think about those options and it plays back into the causality. Of, and, and yeah, it, it's, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's all a non-conscious process. There's, there's definitely consciousness in the process of deliberation, I would say. Well, I but, mean, the, the unconscious may choose to make us conscious of its deliberation. Right. But, you know, if, if we're going by strict definition, you know, the unconscious is by definition what, what we're not conscious of. So, so like, you know, basically that means that the consciousness wouldn't have access to that information. It, yeah, but it has I, access to the information that the, the, so, so consciousness plays a role in like our memory and things like that. And that, and that has, you know, right. that those memory stores have, are part of I think what I, Trick, access I think are. I know what you're saying. You're saying okay. that like that the unconscious might come up with something <laughs> and make us conscious of it. And then that would lead to an, an additional factor in our decision making, you know, since it, once it's become conscious. But right. I, I think that actually the unconscious might not need to make what, what it makes conscious conscious to arrive at that same decision. I think we'd have to go, go into the, the topic of uh, um, consciousness here because I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there's... Like I said, mental causation, I think, is an important aspect of of our decision making skills and things like that. So, but but that, I think it's kind of a different uh, off topic because we can get into a, like a whole topic on consciousness and if there's mental causation or if 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 there's something that's what's called philosophical zombies that that we could actually um, that our consciousness is just something that happens that then we're kind of just observing everything, uh, you know that physically happens that that if our consciousness didn't exist we we'd behave the same way and i'm i'm saying we wouldn't behave the same way we'd have a, a different behavior altogether but that's yeah, a different certainly. conversation I mean, well i mean that's a different conversation but you know just to support you i mean going with sleepwalkers again clearly obviously if you if you look at uh, how someone acts when they're unconscious in any in any state versus how they are in, when they're conscious you know, how they act when they're conscious you see very different behaviors. So clearly, uh, there's an impact made by the fact that you're complicit this memory, like you said, consciously aware. But anyway, yeah. So I mean, see, that that's the thing that gets to me though when it comes to about compatibilism. It's this. It's at some point there is a claim being made, where they say we, and they don't say who exactly the we is, who we are, and we somehow um, do something as opposed to a whole bunch of things happening that are not in anyone's control, that are just determined, that lead to several different outcomes. You know, it's like a, I, this a bit of mystery that's very disingenuous that I, that yeah. I really strongly push back on. So these other, so going back, so these other uh, positions about free will, there's plenty of them, but, uh, you know, you can accept determinism in order to come to the conclusion that because determinism is true, you reject free will. That's the hard determinist. Or you could say determinism and free will aren't compatible, but free will is nonsense. Or we live in a universe that's indeterministic. In other words, there could be 
some acausal event or one acausal event. There's a possibility for some acausal stuff, but still there's no free will, right? And this is the hard incompatibilist position, you know. And then for some reason, other people say there's a way to have determinism and free will. And hopefully, I think we've made a lot of arguments today to show that, you know, there's, it's really just, you know, abusing language and wishful yeah. thinking, fear of consequences. Uh, sometimes it's an issue of pride. It's an issue of, like we said before, fear. Um, wanting control over what you do. I don't see why you would want that, but <laughs> okay. I mean, but yeah, it's this strong yeah. desire to have control. I have a sense of control. Yeah. It's basically a contrivance of, of language in order to yeah. keep things in my, from my perspective, it's, I think it's to keep things under, um, just hidden, uh, hidden behind the smoke and mirrors, basically. So, Trick, you're saying that you believe that that the academians, um, for the most part, who are compatibilists, are are lying to us. That that they actually understand that we don't have a free will, but they're kind of like Saul Smilansky. They don't want this out. Are you are you saying that they're or or because like I, I mean, I'm I, saying I, I'm saying that Dennett, for example, has has very much uh, he goes with those studies, those those really bad studies, and he says, oh, if we let people know that they don't have this type of free will, it's going to cause problems. And, and, and he's his, he has videos basically uh, um, giving kind of like a scenario where um, a neuroscientist puts in a chip in someone's head and says, oh, by the way, this chip makes it so you don't have free will. And then all of a sudden this person goes out and on a killing spree and all this stuff. He, this is the things that he conceptualizes. He thinks is going to happen. And he's like, well, were we responsible? And then, and then we tell the person, oh, the, the neuroscientist actually lied to you. You actually do have free will. Um, and then he's like, well, should we have told this person that they didn't have free will? So, so he, he gives a scenario where, where this people, no, you know, I know, people go that's, mad. I, because know, they that don't know more, they... that sounds trick like it may be kind of like a rationalization of his belief because I, I you know like with a lot of these guys sometimes I suspect with some of them that they really understand that we don't have free will but they're lying to to the public but I, you know I'm, I begin to think that actually they don't really get it they, they you know they first lie yeah. to oh themselves. many of them don't many of them don't get it i think some people do get it or some people are they they just don't want it <laughs> so so they they'll kind of just make but up i mean stuff. like are do you think that like the majority of of academians get that we don't have a free will or lying or the majority don't get it i think the majority of people that are compatibilists get that we don't have the free will that the free will skeptic is saying we don't have. Huh. I think they get that. I just think that they're, they don't want that to come to light, and, and so they make up these other semantics regarding free will. All right, because I, 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 I tend to sometimes think that they lie to themselves first, so then they're not, they're not lying to the public. But you may be right. You know, maybe they do get it. That's, you know, I hope that's not the case, because I'd rather... I'd rather see people as just like unintelligent than 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 so immoral in that sense. No, but there's an, you know now that I think well, about it, there is a, sorry. Can, well, 
Finish your thought first, perhaps. Okay, because because you're, you're saying so immoral, but but I think from their point of view, they're they're thinking it's the moral thing. So oh, I know Bennett does. So no, their I point know. of view, they're thinking, oh, you know, consequentially, we can't let people know that they have this other they don't have this other type of free will. So we'll just redefine free will as this thing that they do have, and that kind of just obfuscates the the facts a, a little bit, and you know. And, and we won't have these problems. So from their perspective, they're doing the moral thing because <laughs> they're, so, they're not understanding yeah. the, the real concept. Hey guys, doesn't this relate to our whole lying to the Nazis scenario we talked about <laughs> in a recent episode? Uh, a little bit. About people yeah. thinking they're doing the right thing by lying? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So what were you saying, Mitch? Uh, I, sorry, I, I totally sorry. cut you off, but I had to get that out. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. I just have to, so one first a comment and then a new topic. Chandler, if you can... Okay, well, I'll, I'll say a few things. I'm not going to speak very long here. but So going back to the Dennett experiment, as you argued earlier, Trick, the, the real flaw is that if you just tell someone they don't have free will, that's not enough, right? That's incomplete. You've, you've told right. them they didn't have free will, but you didn't clearly define them. They didn't take a six-month you know, six long academic course about the issue. They haven't right. analyzed what the consequences should be. They might not even really understand what free will, free will is, what it isn't. They don't know the consequences. So that's not really a fair uh, experiment because it just shows what someone who doesn't know what something really is and what will lead yeah. to what psychological impact it would have on a person. So that, exactly. that's it. Okay. I actually did a blog post on that very video that he made. So it's basically an argument from uh consequences fallacy that he that he puts there but it, but he doesn't even get the consequences right <laughs> so i don't know it's pretty bad and the other thing um maybe chandler can jump in maybe chandler could answer this um i, I was reminded during that last uh, exchange between george and trick of another form of compatibilist this scientist compatibilist so this is this is the issue where um you know some scientists say when it comes to the issue of free will that we haven't figured it out yet. Some contend that it's not an a priori argument. It's not an argument like a math proof or a logic proof, that it requires physical evidence to determine whether or not um, free will is a thing. And they are constantly finding ways to say, we don't have this kind of free will, but this kind is still compatible with the physics of our reality. What, what, do, you th what do you think about that, Chadler? For example, to be really uh, clear, George, there was a video you gave. Was the was the at a uh, I forget the name of the event. The uh, neuroscience one. Yeah, I oh, believe the world, it was a neuroscience world science festival. The world science festival, and there was a panel of scientists who I don't think have the same biases that some philosophers might have, or the same biases that some theists might have, but perhaps they have their own biases, and they, for them. This is an interesting, complex issue, and data and experiments are needed, particularly in the realm of neuroscience. There's new research being done every day, and they don't, they, they're very careful to not, you know, cross that line between philosophy and science. Just for some reason, there's come up some kind of line, and people somehow find this distinction and feel like, well, if you say too much, you've moved from science to philosophy. And in a sense, it's, it's a form of compatibilism because they're always trying to find, find ways to say, 
we could have free will in this sense. We don't know enough yet. There's still more before we can find that out. So maybe Chandler could go first here. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Well, it's very interesting because, first of all, I uh, I get really tired of these discussions of free will uh, with having, you know, the Labette experiments and that kind of thing, um, partly because this it's not about the scientific evidence, like you said, because what it amounts to is that whether you can predict somebody's um, some what somebody's going to do, whether it's a few milliseconds or a few minutes or a, a whole year entirely before what they do, you know exactly what they're going to do. It none of that matters because it's not about you know our ability to predict, but it's about the fact that we didn't choose the prior cause that made us be the person that does that. And and I do think this is a logical, it is a philosophical thing. And so, um, science can just tell us um, what the what causes what, but us as determinists, um, we're just saying that yeah, we know things have causes, um, and we know that we didn't choose those prior causes. So it's very interesting. But I do think that when people play around with the word games and try to have free will in this way. Oh, we can't have free will in this way, so let's have it in a different way. They are getting into philosophy and they are playing word games and they're just trying to... It, I don't find that very scientific, actually. I find it just stupid. <laughs> like, like what, possible, say, what possible experiment, what possible discovery in neuroscience could give any kind of meaning to free will? What could possibly be discovered where all of a sudden the neuroscience community would say, oh, Mitch, that, that's an have... excellent point. That's an excellent point. And for these scientists to believe that, that empiricism can either prove or disprove free will, they, they, they don't get the fundamental. I mean, I mean, yes, it is a philosophical question in terms of logic, but it's also a scientific question in terms of the law of cause and effect. I mean, that, that's this is. You know, the scientific method actually is based on same cause, same effect. So, you know, this both science and philosophy um, negate free will. And, and it's, it's, it's impossible to, 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 to demonstrate it empirically, you know. Um, I mean, actually, actually, no, I think, I think the Labette experiment does, does um, you know, refute free will. But, um, but you people know, people criticize it, it, those experiments. Sometimes. What I'm saying, they criticize know, the nature of them. They, blah, 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 yes, blah. but but I don't think they their criticisms are valid. I think my point is like I think what Chandler, what you were saying that that these um, the experiments may um, you know refute free will, but they're not necessary to refute the refutation of free will is more fundamental, you know, than these experiments. Uh, these experiments aren't required to refute free will. Right. I think when yeah, basically, um, these experiments show that that other people can analyze the brain and predict what somebody's going to do before that person themselves even knows. But the the thing about determinism is causality, but not necessarily predictability. So, I, so it's a very interesting experiment, and I guess it's cool, but it's not what the issue is really about at the heart of it. I think when we talk about science, too, uh, we have to recognize that scientifically, the burden of proof is always on the person making the positive claim. So when there's absolutely no evidence scientifically for free will, even if even if we didn't have our logical case, let's pretend we didn't have we didn't 
you know, we'll we'll just go against the whole causality thing. Even if we didn't have that, there's no logical proof, or I'm sorry, there's no scientific proof for free will. So scientifically, okay. you kind of have to abandon that idea until there is evidence for the positive claim. There's I agree. Sometimes I, proof... I invoke Occam's razor in a very similar manner. Yes. Yeah. So the burden of proof is always on the person making the positive claim. So unless they can scientifically show that there's free will, then scientifically, there's no, you know, there's no evidence to support that claim. Therefore, we shouldn't believe it until we have evidence on the scientific front. Right. Regardless everything of how illogical it is. Right. Things can be explained. I shouldn't say everything, but I should say we have a certain level of understanding of how things work without this notion of free will. And introducing this notion, I don't think it's just an additional assumption. In a, I don't, it doesn't solve any problems. There isn't any additional evidence for it. It's just an additional sum, assumption. There is no additional evidence for it, and it doesn't contribute to our understanding of the way things are. You know, so what's an example? So an example I often give, you know, so this is, you know, strongly. So this is scientific method. This is Occam's razor. The usual example would be gravity. So like, uh, let's say you're discovering gravity. You throw an object in the air and it lands on the ground. You throw different objects, different sizes, different weights. You throw it all over the earth. You have tons of witnesses. They see what happens every time. And eventually you come up with a hypothesis. You say, there is something that I can't see because I can't see it. No one else can see it. So I know people can't see it. So I'll say it's invisible. There's an invisible thing. I can't see it. I'll call it a force. And it pulls objects to the ground. You know, that's the most you could say. You could also make an additional assumption. You could say there's an invisible angel that pulls the object to the ground. Clearly, the second hypothesis is weaker than the first one because there's well, this but additional wait a minute. But now, hold on. Mitch, they're they're wait both wait wrong. We know it's an invisible you're basically <laughs> We know it's an invisible unicorn. Wait, Chandler, wait a minute. No, it's not semantics. Mitch, I'm saying... I, Mitch, no, 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 you're no, no, wait, 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 wait. Go ahead, let George. Me, I got to hear what George's got to say. Let me explain my point. Whether we call it an invisible quote-unquote force or angels, that's just terminology. They're, basically, you're saying the same thing using different words. No, 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 no. That's, that's, no, not at all, right? Because angels have chemistry, you know... An angel is a physical thing that has a lot of things with it, right? Angels, it's a physical being. When you say force, I'm just, I'm not saying the scientific form of the word force. I'm just saying in the most loose sense, force meaning something, right? So even if an angel is pulling it, that counts as a force. So force is the most generalized way to describe mass times acceleration, right? Just something, something is pulling something as opposed to saying what the thing is. Why is it an angel and not an alligator? There's an additional claim. That thing that's pulling it down is specifically an angel and not an alligator. Well, again, so like, that's with, the, the with, the angel, that. with the angel definition, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if, I, if I've heard of, like, you know, definitions of angel saying that they're physical. I, I, I always assume it was just that they Okay, physical. let's say, let's say alligator versus really. crocodile. That's not, that wasn't really the point. We could say an invisible alligator as opposed... Why is it an invisible alligator? and not an invisible crocodile. That's the real point I'm trying to make here. I'm not trying to have a religious uh, conversation I, at the moment. I, 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 <laughs> wait, but then, well, no, if you change the example, you just change your point. Your point then I don't think any longer no. holds. Let, no, let no, me no, clarify. The, 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 point, the point he's making okay. Is, is, okay, you have, you have this, this force that we see. If I drop a pencil, it falls. I, I could say, okay, the, the chances are it could be some, some physical thing. 
or it could be the flying spaghetti monster using its noodly appendage that pushes that pushes down objects. So those are our two hypotheses, and one of them kind of invokes a more extraordinary claim, and the other one doesn't. So so he, that's that's not, what he not means just, by yeah, not just extraordinary, but even if it's not extraordinary, just the fact that there's an additional assumption. So you could right. say there's an invisible alligator pulling it. And I say, no, it's an invisible crocodile. The point is, those are bad those are bad assumptions to make because you're thinking about something very specific without any evidence to support that very specific thing. Why are you saying it must be a crocodile or it must be an alligator? Let's just right. say force for the yeah, time right, being. But, yeah. I mean, because like when you when I I still don't get like the 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 both the the, the spaghetti spaghetti monster alligator. <laughs> crocodile thing dude. like <laughs> the i don't think too. people make those claims you know it was like because like this is kind of like religious because basically we're, we're is a religious term and like you get what you would you have to understand for example like before there was any any science several thousand years ago right they they looked at the, at the sky and they saw a cloud and they saw it rain right and they came up with well something is making it rain and they called it some kind of rain god <laughs> Okay, because they didn't have science, but rain god to them is the same thing that we mean by condensation and whatever causes clouds and causes them to rain. It's a different explanation for the same phenomenon. Uh, yeah, but but he's making an analogy with free will, basically. So he's basically right. saying free will, say, saying that this is free will, us making some kind of decision is is adding something extra that that we don't need to. We could just say that. There's some processes happening, and we can kind of describe those processes, but we don't have to say that it's some extraordinary free will. So it's that's I think that's where, where right. it might be going at. Yeah, so I, I was just trying to complement Trick's point. That is to say that we have certain logical principles. We have the scientific method. We have certain philosophical razors, the most popular of which being Occam's razor, right? And I'm saying these are very common tools for reasoning, right? For trying to figure out the world in the most fairest, most intellectually rigorous sense we can. The best way we have for understanding the world we have and explaining how things do what they do and why things the way they are. So just by being a rational person, you should be the kind of person that, as Trick suggested, follows this scientific method, right? And I said there's also this complementary razor. Some people say, well, there's certain weaknesses in it, but regardless of that, generally speaking, Occam's razor is the idea you shouldn't be saying it's an alligator or a crocodile. You can say force because force could be anything. Good. And if you have additional evidence, like maybe scales, maybe, <laughs> I don't know, some sort of fossil, once you get stronger and stronger evidence, and not only that, but you can build a new model that can do everything the old model did, and perhaps more, and there's additional evidence, then you can go with the next theory. But until then, as Trick suggested, you have to go with the current understanding that uses the best intellectual efforts we have. And currently, given our understanding of you know reality of the universe scientifically, mathematically, there's no place for free will. And free will doesn't do a better job and would require more... Well, I, I, well, I think it's incoherent, obviously. I mean, But if there was something like free will, whatever that means, if there was some thing that we hadn't discovered yet, it would require additional evidence and study and and the like so i think we're all in agreement there right i hope there's no i demystify yeah that's that sounds trying. right yeah i mean free will is <laughs> i think i chose some really poor examples so it's i chose some really poor examples 
with a lot of connotations. We got a little bit sidetracked in the compatibilism issue because yeah. we're discussing alligators and angels and unicorns, how, and so. But <laughs> how long have we been going with this uh, one? Um, we podcast? we've been going for uh, an hour and thirty nine and a half minutes. <laughs> oh, okay. We better cut it off at some point because yeah. one of those is going to be kind of long podcast there. Yeah, but I'm sure it'll be entertaining too. <laughs> So, but yeah, so um, I think we got past all the issues, right? So we can, so this was um, free will, science, and religion with Chandler Clubs, Trick Slattery, uh, George Ortega, and myself, Mitch J. We talked about a few compatibilist positions, but the main idea always being that somehow determinism and free will are, you know, they they work together. They're compatible, hence the word. And um, we made our arguments against it. And I hope it was insightful. See you next time.